After finishing university some decades ago, I was of the age and it was of the time of just exploring what life's all about. And I remember saying to one of my professors in college that I didn't really have any uh, ambition as far as career, but that I knew that I wanted to somehow explore the mind. And of course, in those days, it was drugs and, and music and, and uh, alternate lifestyles of one sort or another. And that's what I was doing for a few years and ended up in a commune uh, up in uh, central Maine. And one of the women there uh, had picked up a book called Beginning to See by Sujata. And it's these little one-liners about mindfulness. And we were reading it and it was, it all kind of made sense in a non-practice way. And in the back of the book was this address you could write to for further information. So she wrote to this uh, still point out in California and the woman at the desk there wrote back and said, oh, uh, there's, a, there's a retreat that's either going on or going to be going on in your area up in Maine uh, this fall. And you can, you can go to uh, two weeks of that. So we, she decided to go on this retreat, which not knowing anything about retreats, not knowing anything about spiritual practice, not knowing anything about Buddhism or meditation or anything else, when she told me she was going away for a couple of weeks, I thought she said holiday <laughs> or something like that. So we took our books and she took her knitting and we took our journals and sketching material and we just took all the stuff that you do if you're going on to do two weeks of nothing. And we drove down to the coast. <laughs> we, we drove down to the coast uh, to this old monastery and a Catholic monastery and we walked in and it was nobody around. You walk in this little entryway and on the left there was a dining room, empty, all the chairs empty, and on the right was closed doors to an auditorium upon which was the schedule. And the schedule was like here, you know, we wake up at four o'clock, at 4.30 you sit, you walk, you have breakfast, you sit, you walk, you sit, you walk, you have lunch, you sit, you walk, you sit, you walk, you sit, you walk, you have tea, and then at seven o'clock, talk. We looked inside the door and everybody's sitting in there like, like you are here. And we thought, oh my God, what are, we, what, are, what are we doing here? But we said, well, at least we get an hour a day to talk from seven to eight. <laughs> well, the most spiritual thing I'd read at that point in my life was Carlos Castaneda's books about Don Juan, which were, which were pretty good, actually. And that was my, that was my guide in, in the spiritual life. But we were there at the first three-month retreat, the last two weeks of it, which was an introduction for new students and 
we said, well, we're here. We might as well do it, whatever it is. Whatever it is. And I sat way up back, leaning against the piano the whole two weeks <laughs> in excruciating physical agony and mental distress. But I wasn't suffering. I couldn't kind of relate to the Buddhist side of the talks. But when they talked about Don Juan and things like that, I could, I could get it. And back then, Dharma talks were about Don Juan and, and other <laughs> notable characters. It was very, very difficult. And as I mentioned, up to that point, I didn't know anybody who meditated. I'd never had any interest in meditation. I, didn't, I was not spiritual uh, in any sense of the word. And yet, I did it as best I could. And at the end of the retreat, we got in our car, drove home. And we drove back to the commune. And in the car, it was just the two of us, and everything seemed pretty normal. I mean, relatively normal. On that retreat, there was no integration. The last sitting was over. Goodbye. Didn't talk to anybody. Just, just got in the car and left. When we got to the commune and we met everybody again, we realized <laughs> we're in a different space. And it was shocking to, to discover how transformed we were, or how different we were seeing the world, when it didn't seem like anything happened during the retreat. It was just pain. <laughs> you know, which is pretty transformative, evidently. But uh, after that retreat and after resettling into the commune and kind of getting over the kind of the bad trip feeling, uh, we kind of felt out of place. But it wasn't until two years later that. I decided to go on another retreat, and since then have been doing retreats and working at the meditation center and in the monastery. And life has life turned a corner. Something happened in that two weeks, and for a long time afterwards, I wondered what what happened because I didn't notice anything particular. I didn't notice any dramatic anything. It was... What I now understand um, happened is that, and I can remember, when I would hear the Dharma talks, it all made perfect sense. It was as if someone was saying what I always knew and had never heard. And I now know that that is a common, actually it's quite a common experience for people, that they hear the Dharma, they hear somebody talking about the truth, just the way things are, and they get it. it in a way, they just resonate with it, just, it rings a bell, it, it awakens something, and it awakens what in the Buddhist understanding of mind is called sada. 
often translated as faith or confidence, but sada is much more than what we think of when we talk about faith or confidence. So tonight I want to speak about sada, partly because sada is the first of five qualities of mind which are the guiding principles of our spiritual development. There are these five qualities called the five spiritual faculties or the five controlling faculties of our development of the awakened or the awakening mind. And these five, let me just say what they are, are sada or faith, confidence. The second is wiriya or energy or effort. The third is sati or mindfulness, awareness. The fourth is samadhi, collectedness, stability, or concentration. And the fifth is panya, wisdom, understanding, or insight. The interesting thing about these five faculties is they are present in all of us to some degree or other, but they're not very well developed and they're not usually in balance until we have practiced some. And so these, these five fac faculties are, uh, they develop through practice in a causal relationship. Faith conditions the arising of energy and effort. Energy and effort conditions the arising of awareness, mindfulness. Mindfulness, or the ongoing continuity of mindfulness, deepens the stability of mind, or samadhi. And through samadhi, the stability of the mind, the concentration and collectedness of the mind, we see more intimately what's going on, and we develop, we come to understand more. We develop insight and knowledge. With that increase in insight and knowledge and understanding, we have more faith, more confidence. And that confidence in turn fuels more energy and effort, more awareness, more stability, more understanding. And this cyclic development of all of these factors is the path of practice, where we just keep increasing gradually, gently, in a cause-effect way, one thing fueling, feeding, and conditioning another. I remember when I'd been doing retreats for about eight or nine years, and Upandita first came to America, did a three-month retreat at IMS in Massachusetts. And it was to be a retreat for about just 20 people, most of whom were teachers or were expected to be teachers, except me. I happened to be the manager of the place, and I wanted to do the retreat, so they let me in. But it was clear I was not teaching material. <laughs> so that's OK. At one point, I was going to report to Pandita every day, and uh, you know, in my, I was totally 
10 years of retreats did not do much for me as far as <laughs> insightful knowledge, believe me. I kind of repaired some of the damage of my past lifestyle, but um, <laughs> I remember him asking me one time what my understanding was of practice and the path of practice. And I said, well, you know, I said something like, well, I think you just practice and do the best you can. And then one day, boom, you're enlightened. <laughs> and, and he burst out laughing. <laughs> Whereupon he gave me a good long discourse on the five spiritual faculties. <laughs> it's not accidental that we awaken. It's through developing the causes. If you develop the causes, the results will take place. These faculties are the causes, the causal conditions for the arising of wisdom and liberating wisdom, ultimately. So it's important to understand them in our life. It's important to understand how they arise in our practice, uh, how they um, are hindered or impeded, how to bring them into balance, how to recognize when they're out of balance, because it's the vehicle for our journey. The journey of awakening is more than just knowing the route or having the map. It's actually making the journey. And yet, every map glorifies the journey. You know, when you read about Lewis and Clark and they, they did this expedition from the East Coast to the West Coast to, well, just discover the Northwest Passage, the waterway to the Pacific Ocean. Of course, they didn't. But historically, it's viewed as just this major scientific, political accomplishment that was just unheard of and extraordinary. But when you actually read about what they endured, it was suffering every hour of the trip for a couple of years. It was just extremely difficult and painful and hunger. It was just, and yet historically, or we see it as wow, you know, experientially it was ugh. <laughs> the spiritual path is not so different. You know, we're on the path to light, love, openness, peace, and happiness, right? Hard to just, hard to verify that from our experience today, but it is. In fact, this is the journey. This is the path. So what is Sada? Well, initially we could say that it is a well-established confidence. It's confidence in oneself, it's confidence in the path, it's confidence in the knowledge, confidence in your own experience and your understanding of it. Now, what it is not is almost more instructive. Confidence or sada is not how much you know about Buddhism. You don't have to know anything 
about Buddhism. You don't have to study Buddhism. It's also not how tenaciously you hold to your idea or belief about spiritual path or practice. It also is not how fervent your desire for enlightenment or awakening is. That's not faith. And neither is faith your zeal and energy and enthusiasm for practice. But rather it is a calm, a calming effect on the mind that knows through personal experience these things. Knows the path, knows oneself, knows how to navigate this path. It's a conviction based on one's personal experience. It's not just what you think about yourself or the path or the practice or the teachings. It's your experience of the teachings, the path, the practice, and yourself practicing. So in that sense, it is something that we arrive at ourself. No one can give you that sadha. You can't get it in a book. Or you can't get it from a teacher. You can't, it can't be kind of dropped on you. But it's through observing and experiencing and understanding your own experience that we can come to have this sadha. But when this sadha awoke in me after or during that first retreat, even though I couldn't articulate it at the time, I now realize that three things happened. One is it helped me to clarify that what I was seeking was a spiritual, had a spiritual nature. It wasn't a career and it wasn't personality stuff and it wasn't a relationship and it wasn't finances, it was spiritual in nature. So it helped to clarify the nature of a spiritual uh, goal. And secondly, it, aro it aroused, it arose, it stimulated the, <laughs> the aspiration within me to achieve it. Now just knowing that there's a, a path and there's a goal, that there's, there is a possible spiritual objective, doesn't put you in pursuit of it until you aspire to it. And the aspiration for realizing a spiritual goal somehow puts you in the picture. It's not just a good idea in a book or in a talk. It's you see yourself somehow in there, obtaining, realizing, becoming, whatever it is that however you uh, clarify spiritual goal, objective. Knowing what the path is and aspiring to the path still won't get you there until we have the confidence to actually do what's required to fulfill our aspiration. And these are the three 
results of the awakening and the development of sadha. Clarification of our spiritual objective, aspiration for realizing it, and the confidence to proceed with doing that. Now, what does it mean to um, clarify your spiritual objective? We live our life based on a lot of um, uh, family conditioning and cultural conditioning, a lot of logic, a lot of rational decision-making, uh, sometimes just being very pragmatic, and sometimes being very ignorant. And these ways of making decisions in our life jump into our spiritual practice. And spiritual practice is not uh, logical, always. It's not always pragmatic. It's not always clear. And so, sada helps to clarify, you know, what is what here. It kind of weeds out the uh, excessive logic and the pure pragmatism. And it just kind of clears the stuff out so that you can begin to see what it is for you or what it is for within this teachings, what it is for you that is your objective in practice. And for me, I realized that um, I really, as, as poorly as I had fulfilled it up to that point and still working on it, I feel a very humanitarian urge caring for people and sharing with people and trying to live in harmony and trying to uh, be nice and kind and to, um, as I said, discover the range of human possibility. That's how I articulated my spiritual goal, my spiritual direction. And I think that's not so far off of what the Buddha would say. wasn't that clear in articulating it, but I felt it. And, and amazingly, or maybe what comes with, with sadha is you recognize when you're not going in that direction, which is so much of the time, initially. It's painful. We know where we want to go. We see how we want to live. We know how we want to relate to people. And yet, our conditioning and the conditions we live with seem to be pulling us in another direction. It's painful to awaken sadha and not have a practice for realizing it. Nevertheless, we all start there. And we could say that sadha is the spiritual compass in our heart that points in the direction that we value. When we aspire to acquire or to realize our spiritual objective, what we are aspiring to do is to acquire those good things we see possible as a human being. To be kind, to be generous, to be understanding, to be patient, to be tolerant, to be loving, to be understanding. 
and these are good qualities. These are, this is the goodness of human life. And we aspire to, to get them, to, to obtain them, to uh, develop them. Without the sadha, without the sadha, we, we, we would not be able to sustain our interest and our effort. We'd have no faith. We'd have no confidence that it was possible. But because, I mean, as some of you are here for, as I mentioned, have been here often, this is an indication of your sadha. If you didn't have sadha, you wouldn't come back. You'd just be on to something else. But, as you know, we still don't feel fulfilled. We still don't feel realized. We still don't feel there's room for improvement. And so our sadha is strong, but our realization is not yet complete. So we could say that sadha serves as the basis for sustaining our interest in the spiritual goal. And the third thing that Sada awakens is the confidence to uh, take the next step or to proceed on this path. And confidence comes with hope, it comes with expectation, with anticipation, with belief, with excitement, all of which are contaminants. Because sometimes we have no hope. Sometimes it's not very exciting. Sometimes it's not very pragmatic. Sometimes we don't really understand whether we should believe it or not. And yet, sadha is still there, and through our practice, we have to confront our hope and the limitations of hope and realize that it's not hope that's going to help you realize your goal. It's not excitement that's going to help you realize your goal. It's not belief that's going to help you realize your goal. It's not anticipation that's going to help you realize your goal. It's sadha in practice. Oh. So a large part of practice in the beginning is weeding out false hope, unnecessary excitement, or just distracting excitement, beliefs that don't really support what you're doing. It's a wonder, really, in some ways, that we can recognize sadha within us, that we can feel it, that we have this assurance, we have some inner knowing that may not be supported by belief or anything else initially, and yet we feel it. I remember after my first retreat, went back to the commune, and for two years didn't do anything, didn't, didn't practice, didn't read a book, didn't didn't do anything. And yet, got a message or a flyer in the mail uh, one summer, and it said, oh, the people that put on that retreat have bought an old uh, monastery or an old seminary, and they're going to fix it up to have a retreat center. I read that, hadn't had any contact with anybody in two years. I read that and said, I'm going. And then worked out the details in my life to actually go. 
drove down to Massachusetts on the appointed day and didn't know anybody, walked into the building, and there was a little office off to the side, walked in there, and I said, oh, I'm here for the retreat. Okay, mm -hmm. well, let me take you to your room. So somebody took me, you know, if you've ever been to IMS, it's, you know, through the dining room and up some stairs and down a hall and up some and down some stairs. And, and eventually, we got to this long, dark hallway, walked halfway down, opened a door to a, a dormitory room, and I went in, and in the room was peeling linoleum, uh, flaking paint, and a, a, a one-and-a-half-inch foam mat on the floor. That's it. And I walked to the back window, or window, looking out into the New England forest behind the center, and I had this feeling. I am going to spend a lot of time here. I am not the gooey type. I'm not the psychic type. I'm not the touchy-feely type. This never happens to me. <laughs> but it did then, and I couldn't stop it. Before the end of the retreat, I'd applied to be on staff, went on staff, and that's sada. That's sada working. Some faith that you, you, you don't know where it comes from. It just happens. Maybe you do, but I didn't. In this development of sada, in this um, strengthening and growing of confidence, we meet doubt. Because doubt is the opposite of confidence. And in order to strengthen confidence, it's not that we can just avoid, deny, dismiss, or minimize doubt. We actually have to look at it and see it, see where it's coming from, and understand it to move beyond it. Actually, the path of practice is not about getting rid of doubt somehow or avoiding it. It's about seeing it in all of its possible manifestations and keep practicing in the face of it. And in this way, we overcome and eventually uproot doubt. But it's important to understand how doubt manifests in our practice because it is really tricky. So I want to speak a little bit about doubt. There are a few things we can have doubt about. One is doubt about the practice. Do I understand the practice? Does the practice work? We can have doubt about our teacher. Who, are, who is she? Who is he? And what do they got that I don't have? And should I trust them? We can have doubt about ourselves. Can I do this? Do I, do I have what it takes? So it's important to understand that these questions or these kinds of experiences will arise in your practice. And it's not because you're doing something wrong. It's because you're doing your practice right that you're going to uncover doubt. You're going to get rid of your hopes, get rid of your false hopes and expectations, anticipations, beliefs, get rid of all that and in the process discover all your doubts and keep practicing in a way to understand them and uproot them or overcome them and eventually uproot them from the mind. So, thought about practice. We hear Dharma talks, we read books, 
we think we know what practice is about until we get to the cushion. And it's not only you, it's everyone who tries practice. It can look so logical, it can sound so um, easy, and we can be so inspired to, to do it, but we don't we don't understand, we don't know how much confusion we have in our mind. And now, uh, I, I feel some way, I feel sorry for people who are just coming to the uh, spiritual life or awakening to the, to the spiritual life, going into a bookstore and looking for some help. You know, back when I started, there weren't any Dharma books, you know, or maybe there was one or two, and that was all you had, and so it was pretty easy. You did what it said. Now you go into the bookstore and there's a few shelves and rooms full of spiritual books. And it's really hard to sort out in your mind what is really necessary, what's useful. What... And many of us come with, to, to practice with just contradictory, confusing, paradoxical, uh, just chaos. And so it's, it's very difficult to practice with any confidence. On the other hand, we don't really have to have a lot of knowledge about practice to have sadha. So after I'd, you know, I did my first retreat, took two years off, went on staff, did a work retreat, then went on staff. One of the first days I was working on staff, Rodney Smith, who was on staff at the time, and I were up in the attic of that dorm room, insulating the place. And we were having a discussion about Nibbana, as if we knew anything about it. And I, he reminded me a couple years ago that I told him then, with absolute confidence, I have no doubt that I will realize the Dharma in this lifetime. Of course, I had no idea what I was saying. Nevertheless, I still had the faith. I still had the confidence. I still had the sadha. But I was completely ignorant as to what was involved in doing that. So it isn't knowledge that, that supports or that generates sadha. Ultimately, for unshakable faith, yes, there needs to be knowledge, but initially it doesn't. As Trungpa said, you know, if we knew what was involved in this path, it would have been better never to have begun. <laughs> but since you all have begun, it would be better if you finish. <laughs> okay. So, doubt about the practice. We'd have doubt about whether the practice works. Well, what is the practice anyway that, that leads to liberation? Well, I... I, I I went to Mahasi Sayadaw, the, the great granddaddy of this tradition of practice, and he said, doubt about the fact that insight meditation consists of simply observing the presently arising mental and physical phenomena. Doubt about that is skeptical doubt. It's a hindrance. This doubt is so subtle that it is rarely detected, but it is instead mistaken for investigation. This doubt masquerades as analytical knowledge. So we read more books, trying to figure it out, thinking that we're getting more confident and clear, when in fact we're just getting more and more doubtful. 
A doubtful meditator who falls prey to wavering and procrastination cannot continue with practice. So, be careful what you read. It might not support your practice, even though it's a Dharma book. I was lucky. I wasn't interested in reading Dharma books. I just lived at the center and listened to the teachers. That was more than enough. But then again, I was living at the center with the teachers. And you look at these people. There was Jack and Joseph and Sharon and Christopher and Christina and, you know, those who become the elders now. Uh, and I looked at them and I said, now, what is so different between them and me? You know, they're a couple years older and they sit up front and give talks. But, you know, they, they looked, they acted relatively the same. It, it wasn't that different. Or the difference, I should say, was subtle. But in time I came to, in time I came to realize they didn't suffer so much. And that's significant. But how do you know whether to have confidence and trust in a teacher? How do you know? They look like you, they act like you, maybe the same age, maybe not. It's not easy to know. We can have a lot of doubt about their experience, their understanding, about their character, about how they live their life, their lifestyle. We have a lot of judgments about each other, not just teachers, and, but we have a lot of judgments about each other by what they wear, what they do, how they act, what kind of car they drive, everything. And some of it is going to be aimed at teachers and there's going to be some, at time, cause for doubt. Well, the Dalai Lama says, you should observe them for 12 years. You know, like uh, put your practice on hold for 12 years. What if you get 11 years in and you find out they're not <laughs> trustworthy? I mean, you know, or ask senior teacher, ask the senior students of that teacher why they have faith or why they have uh, no doubt about that, about that teacher. Um, we do the best we can. We have to trust our own judgment and our own understanding. And the Buddha, the Buddha used, uh, I just came across this, the Buddha used some, some pretty distinctive Buddha-like things to instill faith in others. One was his character, which, as we hear, was pretty noble. Uh, the second uh, uh, technique he used was his psychic powers. Well, I guess it's not us. <laughs> We're not going to use that to instill faith in you. Uh, and the other one was his power of reason. Well, I, I don't know. Uh, I guess it's just magic. Because I know when I heard teachers, I would have some resonance or not with them. All Dharma teachers. And I think that that's the same for all of us. Some, some teachers just speak to us and speak in a way that we hear or that resonates with us. And that's what we follow. That doesn't mean other teachers are wrong. It just means that it's not the right language for you at that time. Nevertheless, we do need to keep an eye on our teachers to, to see that you know, they really are teaching the Dharma and that they're teaching what is onward leading and that they're not uh, diverting us or our energies in some other direction that is not leading to liberation. 
we can have doubt about whether the practice works. How do we know all this effort is actually going to free us from suffering, free our minds? Well, we listen to teachers, we read the texts, we read what the Buddha said, we see if we're doing what the Buddha said, we talk to others who have more experience than us and ask them what their experience is. In this way, we can begin to get some supportive data to, to support our practice. But ultimately, we have to look at our own practice and look at our own result. It's not like, did you get more free in this sitting? Or even, did you get more free in this retreat? But for those of you who've been practicing for any sustained period of time, five years, 10 years or more, then you can ask yourself, what, what's the result? What's the change? Is there some greater uh, ease in my life? Is there some understanding? Is there less entanglement? Is there less suffering? Is there more spaciousness in the heart? This is a confirmation. If we didn't feel that, if we didn't see that, if we weren't able to verify that through our own practice, we wouldn't do this. This is too hard. It's not, it's not worth no, effort, no result. It's too much effort for no result. And so to the extent that we confirm through our own practice, we'll keep practicing. This is, again, supporting um, our confidence. But our own confidence or confidence in ourself is a really tricky thing because sometimes we come to practice with a lot of self-confidence. And then we find out there's no self. <laughs> and our confidence goes with it. Well, that's the simplified version. But we come with a lot of uh, prior history of having accomplished certain things in our life, careers and school and other things. And that kind of self-confidence isn't what's needed in this practice. It's not how strongly you believe in yourself. It helps to have some sense of yourself and your own capacity, but it's through just doing the practice. However, we cannot think our way to self-confidence, to authentic confidence in practice. We actually can only arrive at unshakable confidence or verified confidence through practicing. And for that, a spirit of inquiry is needed. We really need to look at ourselves. We really have to ask ourselves the difficult questions. Am I practicing right? How do I know that? Is there any benefit? How do I know that? Is the mind freer? How do I know that? There's a lot of, even in the Buddha, the Buddha talked about a lot of benefits from spiritual practice and the spiritual life. But he eliminated all of them as being the goal of spiritual practice, except the sure heart's release. There's a lot of benefits, a lot of calmness and tranquility and openness and loving kindness. And there's just lots of benefits, but that's not the goal. They're kind of like side benefits that come with practice. And to stop at any of those as the, the goal or as the fulfillment of your practice is to shortchange yourself. On this journey of 
gradually developing um, confidence through practice, there are times when we have too much confidence. There's a couple of places in practice. One of them is called um, the upakalesas or pseudo-nibbana. It's called pseudo-nibbana because um, conditions arise in the mind that we, in our naive beliefs, imagine to be the goal. When we feel just unbelievably uh, in love with the Dharma and unbelievably confident about the Dharma and we just want to share it with everybody. We can't wait to tell our parents and our partners and our dog and our cat and we want to go on staff at retreats and we want to do another retreat next week and even join the monastery for the rest of our life. That's excessive. But at the time it's just like mainlining confidence that actually becomes a hindrance, that becomes an obstruction to effective and balanced practice. That kind of excessive confidence needs to be balanced with a little understanding, a lot of understanding, a lot more wisdom. This is not the end of the path. But nevertheless, we still need to uh, be careful of uh, excessive uh, confidence because it can lead to a kind of blind faith, a, a belief in uh, or a, a misplaced trust in someone or some technique that cannot deliver. Blind faith is uh, juicy. It can be uh, very pleasant, but it's not grounded in understanding. It has no discernment. It has, there's no knowing why we do what we do, even though we feel motivated and confident in doing it. You can, you can think of uh, the, the folks at Jim Jones' place down in, whatever that was, Jonestown. Some of them were reluctant, some of them got out, but most were confident this was the thing to do. Really blind faith, misplaced trust, without discernment. At times we have that. You know, some guru comes to town, gives a talk, that can just, boom, wow, that was really amazing. We can, we can be totally inspired by it and want to just kind of jump in and devote ourselves to it without really discerning where it's coming from, whether it's a path of awakening or just some feel-good uh, mystical something or rather. We have to be careful of blind faith. On the other hand, there is and there are others who can inspire us tremendously and can awaken within us a bright faith, a faith that just feels so good that we feel confident, we feel knowledgeable, and it too can support us in practice, but it's not adequate for a verified faith. For myself, when I was, went on staff at this meditation center, uh, you know, I was doing some retreats, and then later, after I'd been there about a year, 
uh, a Burmese monk came to the meditation center to, to offer some teaching. He was the first Burmese monk that had come to America, and I'd never, I'd never seen a monk. I didn't know anything about him, didn't know, didn't know what they did, but we heard about him, that he was a practicing monk, and uh, you know, he lived in a cave for 32 years doing his practice, 33 years doing his practice, and he was teaching, he was coming to teach us, and it's like, okay. So in walks this short, wizened, thin guy, monk, with sunglasses on at nighttime. Hey, you live in a cave all your life with sunglasses, that's how you move around the world. I didn't know really anything about it. I didn't know what, his, what he'd done for practice or what his attainments were, but he was very inspiring. I felt, I didn't know what he was and did or anything, but I wanted to be like him. I didn't want to be short, I didn't want to wear sunglasses, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> I wanted to have what he had, whatever that was. And it was a tremendous arousal of faith. And, and at that time, I wanted to go be a monk. I wanted to go with him and be a monk. He was so inspiring just in his presence. I wasn't able to, of course. I had other obligations. And, and it wasn't until eight years later that I was able to go to Burma and actually ordain and practice and, and do that. But during that time, the hit of faith, of bright faith that I got from him was a fantastic support for practice. It didn't relieve me of practicing. Still had to practice. And through practice, you know, just the, the sitting and walking and paying attention like you've been doing, we slowly begin to verify the teachings. This, this is the way it is. You know, uh, whatever it is, you know, in every moment something is being known. Eventually we get it. It's just something being known, something being known, being known. And what is this whole process here? Mind and body, mind and body, that's it. Well, the sound's pretty, you know, where's all the jazz, you know? That's not very sexy. Mind and body, moment after moment, something being known. But if we keep practicing, we get it. We, we, we really see that and we come to understand it. We begin to verify for ourselves through practice what the Buddha is teaching. And we see for ourselves uh, successive uh, unfoldings of understanding. How to uh, kind of relieve ourselves of the burden of unskillful actions from the past. We see we can do that. We can uh, forgive. We can forgive ourselves. We can uh, overcome all of our doubt, all of our guilt, all of our, uh, we can see our uh, unskillful behavior as it truly was, unskillful and not be guilty, having let it go. Well, we begin to verify that this is the path, this is how it all happens. In time, through continued practice, through Continuing to practice whenever doubt arises, whenever any question about practice or any question about the effectiveness of practice or any question about your ability to do the practice, whenever that comes up and you see it as just doubt, another moment 
of mind being known, that's all, and not get identified with it, gradually we uproot every filament of doubt from the mind. But we have to see every one of them. We can't let go of what we don't know we're holding on to. And so we, we sit and we practice. And every time you see doubt and you continue to practice with it, you are strengthening confidence in sada and uprooting doubt. This is the path of practice. This is how we reach and develop uh, unshakable faith. Unshakable faith is, in this tradition, we use the term unshakable faith for someone who has realized the unconditioned, for someone who has had their first taste of Nibbana, who has uprooted the belief in an enduring self in this process, who no longer needs to rely on rites and rituals of any sort in their spiritual uh, practice, or realize that that's not the effective spiritual path, and in addition has an understanding and confidence in the Noble Eightfold Path, that this is the path to liberation. With that realization, with that uh, overcoming of doubt, this is the confidence that arises in the mind, that the Noble Eightfold Path and the development of those eight factors is the path of liberation. And it's not, a, it's not something that you just believe, it's something that you've experienced within yourself and you've understood it as it, how this works through your practice. As the Buddha said in the Kalama Sutta, do not believe in anything simply because you heard it. Do not believe in tradition because it's been handed down for generations. Do not believe in anything because it is spoken and rumored by many. Do not believe in anything simply because it is found written in religious or spiritual books. Do not believe in anything merely on the authority of your teacher and elders, but after observation, paying attention, and analysis, discernment and understanding, when you find that anything agrees with reason and is conducive to the good and benefit of one and all, then accept it and live up to it. Sometimes that path seems pretty arduous. But when you look at the fruit of our efforts, which is the confidence to proceed, continue the practice to liberation, it's only the first step. It may be arduous, but there's no other way. You're bound to become a Buddha if you practice, Stonehouse, a 14th century Chinese hermit monk said. If water drips long enough, 
even rocks get worn away. <laughs> it's not true thick skulls can't be pierced. People just imagine that their minds are hard. We're just imagining that our mind is so hard and so stiff and so that we'll never get there. It's not true. You're bound to become a Buddha if you practice. So let's sit for a moment. 